We're continuing our series here in the book of Acts, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 23. That's where we'll be this morning um, for the bulk of it. Uh, if, you've, if you've been following along with us, Acts very much is the story of the people of God continuing the work of Jesus. And there's been this theme, really, it's, it's, it's been a bit of a paradigm shift for many of us as Christians because we're used to thinking about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as sort of little tidbits of biography about Jesus' life until we fast forward to the cross and resurrection and that's really sort of the point. But really there's much more to it than that. And, and um, I, I tried to recap some of it early in the Acts series when we were in Acts 1 and Acts 2 because the Gospels, one of the key messages that the Gospel writers are trying to tell us is this. Jesus is how God becomes King on earth right now. And there's so much layered in there because of Israel's story and because of all these different things that there are actions that Jesus does, sayings that He says, things that He does that aren't simply random bits of fulfilling prophecy as it were, as if it was kind of like some ancient prophecy here and some ancient prophecy there, like a Mayan calendar here and an Nostradamus prophecy here. And all of a sudden Jesus kind of you know, puts it all together. That's not it at all. Instead, what the Gospel writers show us is that God had been launching this salvation project through a people. And it was this people that was called the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes, He emerges, and He says, Look, I am the long-awaited one. I am the one bringing God's rule to bear on the world even now. And there's there's, there's so much hope in that. I think in a couple of weeks... I'll do an Advent sermon on December 9th about why it really is joy to the world. What is this hope that all of Israel was waiting for? And how does Jesus sum up in Himself the story of Israel and start, launch the kingdom of God? But we kind of have to have that in the back of our minds as we're reading through the book of Acts because Acts is not just a collection of church stories and, oh, isn't this nice? These guys did this and then they did this and then they did that. Acts is meant to to say that Jesus Christ reigns on earth even now and His reign is expressed through His people, the church. So Acts begins with this incredible scene of Jesus' ascension. Now, most of us, if you're like me, you grew up sort of viewing Jesus' ascension like E.T. going home, you know? It's kind of like the spaceman returning back, you know? It's like, see you later, I must go to my father, you know? But all of those images from the clouds to the enthronements, drawing from Daniel and drawing from other Old Testament passages, all of those images are meant to tell us something. Jesus is ascending to the throne from where He rules the world. You say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right because if we look around the world today, it doesn't really seem like God's really ruling, does He? And there's all kinds of nuances with this claim, but what Acts is trying to show us is, look, how do the people of God live in the world as people who don't belong to it? How do they live as a people of God that are meant to be the signposts, the first group, this first community that announces to the world that the true King has arrived? A kingdom has come. And every time you gather together as the church, you're saying, yes, we believe it. It has begun. There is a new humanity, a new kind of human. It's 
the one who's been made new in Christ. We live a different way. We love in a different way. Everything changes. Now the rub, of course, with this kind of claim is when you start to think about earthly governments. I suspect that because most of us have spiritualized Jesus' kingship, i.e., Jesus is really my personal Lord and Savior. Now, I just want you to know that if any of the early Christians said that Jesus was their personal Lord and Savior, Caesar would have taken a nap. But it's because they said Jesus is the Lord and Savior, and we'll get to this later this morning about what exactly they were doing when they made those claims, all of a sudden, governments and rulers were uneasy. In fact, the Gospel writers show us how the Rulers were uneasy from the very birth of this innocent little baby. Why? What was this extraordinary claim that the followers of Jesus were making about Jesus? It certainly wasn't that He was a personal Lord with a spiritual kingdom. They were saying something much more dramatic than that. So we find ourselves in Acts 23 where Paul is, he encounters two different groups of rulers. One is a Jewish ruling authority. And he finds them to be hypocritical. And then he encounters a Roman ruling authority and he finds them to be very instrumental in God's purposes. And so here we are on the Sunday before elections, perfectly set up to ask ourselves, how do we think about governments and the kingdom of God? I couldn't have planned this any better. (laughs) And I didn't. Now, Many of you have heard me share parts of my story. I grew up in Malaysia, I'm 34 years old now, cumulatively altogether, I lived in, I've lived in Malaysia for about 14 of those years and lived in America for about 20 of those years. Most of my school-going years were spent either in American schools or with American school programs while living in Malaysia. That's a story for another day. But the point is, I, I, I know far more about American history and American government theory, ideology, all of that stuff than I do about Malaysian history and government. In fact, if you ask me some detailed questions, I'll say, talk to my dad. He's here. He happens to be here. He'll tell you. My dad was a political science major back in the day. And, um, but Malaysia was a, had a, has, has a parliamentary system of government, followed by the British, um, and, uh, and so I, I came to sort of understand that a little bit. But as I said, I know a lot more about America. Now, this year is a particularly special one for me because this is my first election, presidential election that I can vote in as a citizen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really remarkable. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, let's see, it was probably October or November of 2010, I went into a very um, sort of uh, inauspicious office cubicle area at this place in Denver and was sworn in as a citizen. I sort of expected it to be a little more dramatic, but, uh, but, it, but it, was, it was a special moment and it, and it was um, very meaningful. And so here I find myself being able to get ready to vote. And I'm, and I'm not doing the early voting thing because unlike, you know, all of, many of you, you want the convenience. I want the whole experience, you know. <laughs> I'm going to go stand in the line for two, three hours, by golly, you know. Uh, bring a book. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about this. So how, how do we think of this as Christians? And I, I don't know how you'd characterize this, but probably when you hear the word politics or you hear the word government or elections or whatever, you, you, you might have one of two reactions. Maybe one reaction is, oh, please, I'm so sick of this. 
Not again. And I don't, don't politicize the gospel and don't bring Jesus into politics. And government's a bunch of lying hypocrites anyway and they never do what they say they're going to do. So who cares? It's the who cares. And then, then there's the, are you kidding me? This is how we can advance the kingdom of God. And if we would do this, and if we would do this, and if we would do this, then this would happen, and then this would happen, then America would have revival again, and we'd get back to our roots, and da 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 And maybe the two camps sort of are making each other more polarized than you would be. Because you've got the who cares camp, and then you've got the, I don't know, what should we call it, the, what's that? It's all that matters. This is how it happens. And if we could just get back to our roots and our this and our that, then God would break in. You know, it's interesting because these sort of camps and anywhere along the spectrum, would you believe that we're not the first to experience the spectrum? (laughs) That actually in Jesus' day, there was quite a lot of different factions and groups that fit somewhere along this spectrum. You had the zealots who said, look, God is for us, and if we would just have the courage to stand up and pick a fight with the Romans, then God would finish the battle. Risky strategy. And then you had the Pharisees who said, listen, God made us promises, and the only reason He's not blessing our nation is because we've been disobedient. Sound familiar? And if we could just obey better, then God would be faithful and bring in the kingdom. Sounds familiar? And Jesus says, no to you and no to you. And Jesus says, I've got an astonishing announcement. I am the kingdom of God. Say, what? I am the culmination of this moment. What What do you mean? I am the Messiah, the great saving hope, the king. No, you're not. You're the carpenter's kid. No, no, I am God incarnate. I'm God who has come near to rule and start a new age. With that, Jesus, that's a bit, that's highfalutin talk. You're ushering in a new age? I don't think so. One of the great ironies in one of the gospel writers, I think it's John's gospel, is when Pilate says, look, this is Jesus, is he your king? And they shout back to him, we have no king but Caesar. (gasps) Now a good Jew raised on the stories and poems and prophecies of the Old Testament would have said, we have no king but Yahweh, but God. That's why the Old Testament reading from Psalms says something similar. But things had gotten to the state where they were so desperate that they stopped believing that God actually would, would do what He said He would do. They stopped believing that God would actually be faithful and became convinced that they had to find a way to do it. Now that's what, Glenn, we can't relate to that at all. And so they began to believe that, look, if, if we could just say the right things and say, there is no king, we have no king but Caesar, and maybe Caesar will be good to us and allow us to kind of do our thing in our little Jewish corner of Jerusalem, and all will be fine. And Jesus walk, walks in and says, no. No, I came to do something much more radical than that. It is as you say. I am the king. What do we do with this? How do we live in the world with those claims? I mentioned several weeks ago 
a theologian named Miroslav Volf. And I mention names to you, by the way, not to, not to name drop or sort of, you know, kind of authenticate and say as, as if it's a knockdown argument, that there's no arguing anymore. Not, not at all. But I mention names in the hopes that some of you might jot it down and say, I, I want to read more about that. Because the, my whole goal is to equip you to think and to follow and to believe. Amen? So I'm not just going to tell you stuff and say, take it. But Miroslav Volf is the chair of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School, and he wrote a book last year called Public Faith. And he talked about how our faith malfunctions with regard to public life in one of two ways. Either we have the who cares, government's all a farce kind of view, and so we tend towards idleness, a faith that says, I don't need to get involved, I don't need to, I don't need to vote, I don't need to do anything because it just doesn't matter, and who cares? But that's our faith malfunctioning. You might say a word that I think might be helpful for you to think of this view is isolation. We're just going to be in our little corner and we'll focus on personal holiness and we won't worry about anything else. Actually, there was a group in Jesus' day that came up with the same conclusion, the Essenes. The Essenes said, let's get out of the city, let's go into the desert, and let's just have our own little private holiness club because we don't want to engage culture, isolation. Then you have, Wolf says, the other way our faith can malfunction is where we have coerciveness. And we say, my faith, because I believe this, everybody should believe this. And then you have coerciveness. So if you have isolation, now you have domination. Where you're saying, let's take over. It's a little bit more like the zealots, or maybe the Pharisees. And Jesus comes to us with something we call the incarnation. Where He's in this world. And there's going to be complexities about how we navigate it. All right, on to Paul. Acts 23, verse 1. Here we go. You ready? Are you interested in this? Okay, okay, good, okay. Paul stared at the council and said, Brothers, I have lived my life with an altogether clear conscience right up to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those standing beside Paul to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said, God is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit and judge me according to the law. Paul is sort of, you know, timid, a compromiser. You sit and judge me according to the law, and yet you disobey the law by ordering that I be struck. These are fighting words. And those standing near him asked, you dare to insult God's high priest? Listen to what Paul says. Paul replied, brothers, I wasn't aware that he was the high priest. And you say, well, how could he not be aware well, it's been about 20 years or so before, since Paul had last interacted with the high priest. Could be that because this trial was such an ad hoc trial, the high priest had come without his proper vestments and robes. Or one theory is that Paul had bad eyesight. Um, one of his letters, he says, Behold what large letters I write to you. I don't know. That's it's a bit of a conspiracy. But, but, but whatever the case, Paul doesn't recognize that this dude's the high priest. And he says, Brothers, I didn't know he was the high priest. It is written, You will not speak evil about a ruler of your people. That's remarkable. It's remarkable because Paul basically backtracks. He apologizes. I, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have done this. Later, or actually, some, one of the commentaries I read suggested that at this point, Paul had already written his letter to the church in Rome, to the Romans. If that's true, listen to what he said in Romans 13. Every person should place themselves under the authority of the government... There isn't any authority unless it comes from God. And the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. So anyone who opposes the authority is standing against what God has established. People who take this kind of stand will get punished. Say, what? 
And I know the tendency in all of us is to say, well, you don't know what's going on in our day and the corruption and the this and that and the lobbyists and the, this plan and that plan. I'm pretty sure whatever you and I have experienced in America is going to be a million times better than Caesar in Rome. Pretty sure. And so it's this shocking statement that Paul would say, look, there is no government except one that's been established by God. So the phrase that I want us to wrestle with this morning, and there are two of them, the first one is this. A government may be hypocritical, but they must be respected. Governments may be hypocritical, but they must be respected. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me, so Glenn said all our governments are hypocrites. I didn't say that. I said even if they are, they must be respected. The difficulty about really trying to be engaged and learn and figure out what's going on is that there's so much bickering and so much mudslinging and name-calling and, and that's just the Christians. <laughs> I mean, really, like I, I, I... To be honest, I've tried to sort of avoid Facebook in the last month or so because it's just nasty. And you can disagree with a political view. You can disagree with a leader. You could think that a leader is a hypocrite. You could think that a leader is going to take the country down the wrong track. You could think all of those things. But how you say it matters. Because you belong to King Jesus. You don't belong to this world. Your only grid for political discourse is not the Constitution of America and the Declaration of that, That's not your only grid. You have a higher grid. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' kingship. It's a new way of being human. Some of what we call political discourse is, doesn't sound human at all. It's, 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 I don't know what it is. But there's something to think about here, even from Paul, to say, okay, it may be that it's hypocritical, it may not be right, but how can we respect it? Christians really, I think Christians ought to be a picture to the world of what civility looks like, not the proponents of slander and alarmist propaganda. I'll say that again. Christians ought to be a picture of what civility looks like, not proponents of slander and or, um, alarmist propaganda. This is too much of that. It's too much of that. And I'll tell you why it happens. I think it happens because Jesus is just your spiritual Lord who will take you to a spiritual heaven where His spiritual kingdom is. But that's not how Jesus talked. And that's not how the first followers of Jesus talked. If He truly is the Lord, the King, then we have a new way of living. A new kind of love. A love that welcomes in even the ones that you disagree with. Who is the picture of the person that, that, that represents the, the one who distorts the truth and the one who, who is bad for the kingdom of God and the one who is bad for Israel? You know who that person was in the New Testament? That's the Samaritan. The Samaritan was the one who was sort of the half-breed who took parts of Moses and mixed it in with their own stuff and it was syncretistic and they used Yahweh's name but they changed some of his claims and all of this stuff. And, and the Jews hated Samaritans for lots of reasons, that being one of them. 
And Jesus, when asked, who is my neighbor, tells a story where the Samaritan's the hero. In part to expose the prejudice in people's hearts. In part to say, are you ready to be part of a kingdom where I welcome in everyone who calls my name? Are you ready to be part of a kingdom where there are people who you disagree with? You may have fundamental disagreement on economic theory. One person you may say, oh, well, you're a, you're a socialist. And the other person says, well, you're a greedy capitalist. <laughs> Adults, you know, we don't change the name calling that kids do. We just change the names. <laughs> so, but, but, but what if... There's something that trumps all of that. And it's being brothers and sisters together in the kingdom of God. Shouldn't your discourse then be a picture of respect and civility and not of slander and rumors and that stuff? I think so. Paul thinks so. We go on. In verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Be encouraged, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you too must testify in Rome. Now pay attention to this real quick. Who is sending Paul to Rome? Jesus. And then we skip down to verse 23. The commander called two centurions and said, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock. Tonight, have horses ready for Paul to ride so that they may take him safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysias, to the most honorable Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was almost killed by them. I was nearby, just happened to be, with a unit of soldiers, and I rescued him. This is a wonderful letter that's a bit self-congratulatory. And I discovered that he was a Roman citizen. That you discovered it because Paul interrupted you to tell him. But okay, I discovered. And I wanted to find out why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their council. And I discovered that they were accusing him about questions related to their law. And I found no charge deserving of death or imprisonment. And when I was informed of a conspiracy against his life, I sent him to you at once. And ordered his accusers to bring their case against him before you. Paul gets escorted by Roman guards to Rome. Here, in a severe twist of irony, you have Jewish rulers that are shown to be corrupt and Roman rulers that are shown to do the right thing. To kind of give this guy a fair trial. And, and one sort of wonders what Luke was trying to do here <laughs> to show the Roman government to be more just. And so all of a sudden, you see that governments are, being in, are, are instrumental in God's hands. And so, that's our second phrase. Governments may be instrumental, but they must be reminded that Jesus is king. Let's take the first half of that. They, their governments may be instrumental. They're being used here for good, for Jesus' plan, for Paul's life. In other words, we could say this. If you were to make this, um, say, well, well, you know, what does even Rome sort of understand about itself as the role of government? Well, they're trying to protect the vulnerable to some degree. Lots of um, inconsistencies with that in their empire for sure. To give the accused a voice, maybe. This is the beginning of sort of trial um, systems. To provide order by limiting the damage that wicked people could do. That's kind of true. Part of the role of government is to limit the damage that sinful people can do. 
Okay? It's good. We sort of take that there's fallenness in the world, so there's, there's got to be some limitedness. And then Paul, again, in Romans 13, continue this. Verse 3. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people who are doing wrong. Would you rather not be afraid of authority? Then do what's right, and you'll receive its approval. It is God's servant. Tricky. Underline this in your Bible. God's servant, given for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid, because it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. Again, it is God's servant. You can underline that again. Put in place to carry out his punishment on those who do what is wrong. We want to say, affirm this, this first part of this, that governments may be instrumental. God can use righteous and just governments. You can see, you can hear stories of how when there are corrupt governments in other parts of the world where there are systemic problems that's very difficult to undo. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I, I, I wrote in a recent blog, I think Christians can and should be involved politically because sometimes what's often said is, is a bit of a cop-out is, well, let the church take care of the poor. Well, we don't need, we don't need, any, we don't need any regulations or this or that. We just let the church do that and we just need, you know. The trouble is, the church can take care of the poor in front of them, but the church can't undo systemic injustices. There are systematic injustices that have to be undone by people in power. And, and anybody who's been a missionary or spent time talking with missionaries, been overseas, you, you've been in other countries, you understand that the church can always ought to obey Christ no matter what. But there are some environments that make it easier to do our work and some environments that make it harder. There's some environments where it, it feels like that old Greek myth of pushing, pushing the rock up the hill and having it fall back down again. Because you help the poor, but then the systematic injustice kind of puts people in those situations again. So part of, our, part of why governments are needed is to limit the amount of harm that bad people can do. And you say, well, look, we, we need this. We don't just need church to run the show. Earlier this year, I took a class at, at Fuller Seminary on the medieval church. It's a fascinating class because we studied different periods of the church history from Constantine onwards. And the midterm exam had one essay question that we were supposed to write from memory, okay? One question, the whole midterm. There's a couple of multiple choice, but then really this essay question. And the essay question was this. Identify distinct periods and locations of Europe and discuss the relationship between church and state in each, citing as many names, ordinances, decrees as possible. So I wrote this out, I outlined it in my mind and memorized it, memorized it, memorized it. And, and you know the thing that was astonishing? Is there was, a, there was a moment when Gregory the Pope sort of functioned in the capacity of the state because nobody was taking care of the poor and so a church leader became elevated just because he wanted to help care for the poor and provide, and, and all of a sudden you have this bishop of Rome negotiating trade agreements with other peoples. It gets awkward. And then you have this constant struggle back and forth. I won't summarize the whole question for you because it's a complex question. But I think we've sort of arrived at this point where we say, you know what? There's a need for governments to do some things. They can, they can be instrumental here. I personally am not a, a, a Christian anarchist. That doesn't believe, you laugh, but there are people who are. And that's, that's, I understand there are the reasons for it. I'm not a Christian separatist that believes that we sort of just huddle in our separate corner. I, I, I don't think that. 
But here's the catch. So governments may be instrumental, but they must be reminded that Jesus is King. Why say that? Why say that phrase? Why say they must be reminded that Jesus is King? Because of the phrase I had you underline in Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul says they are whose servant? God's. Now that's actually not the theory of democracy, is it? Because the theory of democracy, which developed in a post-enlightenment Europe that wanted to keep God upstairs and let us handle the affairs on earth down here. So Voltaire and all these other enlightenment thinkers try to devise a political theory where people of faith can do as little damage as possible and democracy seems to, to be the one that fits. But democracy says let the peop- it's the government of the people, by the people, for the people. But Paul says... It's government as a servant of God. So tell every ruler that they're not really the ruler. <laughs> okay, now you're beginning to understand why Christians were so, such troublemakers in the early centuries. Because imagine going to Caesar and saying, Caesar, I just want you to know, we appreciate you, I'm a citizen, it's great, but just so you know, you're really a slave. Excuse me? I know you're kind of into the whole God, Caesar Caesar worship, emperor worship stuff, but just so you know, you're really a servant. To whom? To God and God's king. Well, who's God's king? Jesus. Excuse me. And some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, Glenn. That's quite, I mean, like, how, how did they do this in the New Testament? I mean, they didn't really do this. There are many ways that they did do this. Acts 24, the very next chapter, when Paul gets in front of Roman authorities, it says he begins to talk to Felix about his adulterous marriage and about the coming judgment of God. And it says the Roman ruler was very uncomfortable and ended the conversation. (laughs) You think? Here's Paul. He's not looking for a hall pass. He's not asking for an audience with Roman government so that he can get out. He's asking for an audience so he can proclaim Christ. That's the difference. Paul doesn't leverage his citizenship so he can get out of suffering. We know Paul is willing to suffer. Paul leverages his citizenship to announce to Caesar that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. You know some of the other ways the New Testament, the early Christians did it? Think of all the titles you know for Jesus. Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Did you know that Christians didn't invent any of these titles? Did you know that every one of those titles was used of Caesar? Starting with Julius Caesar, God, then Augustus, his son, the rumor sort of the legend sort of grew when, when Augustus was ruling, and so he sort of thought, look, if they think my dad's God, what does that make me? The son of God. And so on a Roman coin in the first century, you'd see Caesar's face with the inscription, son of God. The word for Caesar, when he would walk in, when they would have a, a, a game in one of the um, theaters, or, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Colosseums, in Philippi, for example, and Caesar would come in and the citizens would stand the way we stand to sing a national anthem, only they would say, Honor to Caesar, the Lord and Savior. The Kyrios and Soter. Now think how audacious it is in the face of that 
where Christians would say, you know the guy you executed on a cross like a criminal? He's actually Lord and Savior. He's actually Son of God. He's actually the King of all kings. He's actually the Prince of Peace. The Pax Romana is nothing compared to the peace that God is bringing to the world through Jesus. The freedom that Caesar prints on his coins that says freedom to all the regions of the empire is a farce compared to the, compared to the freedom that Jesus brings. Now this is seditious. This is anti-empire. This is stuff that would get Paul labeled or misunderstood in the previous chapter as a terrorist. He's a threat to national security. Just put it in our language today. That's difficult to think about. That allegiance to Jesus ought to make the people who claim power uneasy? I don't think it does, does it? I think Christians are too easily offer ourselves up as pawns to be used in the political process. We have no king but you, Caesar. And here's Paul saying, God may use governments, But every time I have a chance to say it, I'm going to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's disturbing, to say the least. What might this look like for us? Well, I think we have the privilege of a voice. Personally, I think we ought to use that voice. And we ought to use it in a way that reminds our governments that they will one day give an account to the ruler of the world. And you'll wrestle through what about that you'll remind them of. Some of you may say, oh, I'm gonna, this is the, the issue that, that sticks for me and I want to use my voice to call them to account to Jesus as the ruler and therefore... You know. I think it also means that that we tune back, tone back the America is the hope of the world talk. America has done amazing things for the world. And when you compare America as a modern empire with ancient empires, there's no comparison. We've always sought to do good. You could say, well, look at the bad. Well, look, empires have always been operating out of self-interest. But what makes America different is that it's tried to do more than that. It's tried to be noble. And you think of some of the, the great endeavors. So it's, it, it's, it's unfair to say, I think some Christians kind of go too far in this and say, well, it's, it's evil. It's unfair to say that. But it's also not quite right to say that this is the great hope for the world. It's not. It's also unfair to say that we can go out there and defeat evil. N.T. Wright, the great British theologian, was asked one time, what, what makes you angry? And without thinking too long, he says, it makes me angry when governments get arrogant enough to believe that they can defeat evil. And so you think of the world that we live in post-9-11, and both he referred to his prime minister and referred to our president, 
And said, and both these guys sort of got up and announced to the world that we're going to go after evil. Friends, the truth is there is only one king who defeats evil. And he did it at the cross. But if you spiritualize the cross to where it's, well, that's just about the evil and sin and forgiveness so I can go to heaven, then of course you'll be tempted to believe in a nation as your hope. Because Jesus is just a spiritual hope. But if Jesus really is the king who defeated evil, who rules the nations now and will rule it in finality, if you really catch a picture of what the writer in Revelation describes as the one coming in on the horse who's on his sides are labeled the one who is righteous and just and true, and only he can execute vengeance on the nations, then the church must always stand up and say, I like that you're doing this, I like that you're doing this, but excuse me, Jesus is the hope of the world. Excuse me, there is a king, and you're going to have to give an account, just like I'll have to give an account. And every person who claims power will ultimately have to acknowledge that their power came from the only true power there is. And he rules the world with truth and grace. Let men their songs employ. Let fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. We're coming into the season of Advent. I learned earlier in the week that in some church traditions, even before the church calendar begins, it sort of seems like over-eager to start the liturgical year. You know, Advent begins it, but we really have a season right before it called Kingdom Tide. And Kingdom Tide is sort of this month of November right before Advent that gets us thinking about the kingdom of God. My prayer for you is that you begin to think about the kingdom of God in more than a spiritual way. My prayer for you is that you begin to think about the kingdom of God as a here and now present reality. My prayer for you is that the words of the Lord's Prayer that we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is, not some, is, is the exact opposite of what has been our American evangelical hope of saying, oh Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, take me out of earth that I may go to heaven. I pray that the words of the, of the Lord's Prayer would rock you and reshape you so that as you live amidst this world, you are firmly planting a flag of the kingdom of God that says, this is my Father's world. And Jesus is King of it here and now. The way we respond to that is to come to the table. The way we acknowledge that is to come to the table of the Lord because it's at the Lord's table that we remember what trumps what. That Jesus trumps race, Jesus trumps nationality, Jesus trumps political party, Jesus trumps economic theory, Jesus trumps all of it. And Jesus says, (laughs) you're living in this kingdom now or you're not. Live in it now. See, behold, the reign of God has begun even now. Live in it. The short answer to the question of how does God really rule now is through His body, through you, the church. Which is why the church, the church historic and the church universal is more important than any sort of national pride. It is. Love your nation by all means. 
But love the people of God more. Love the fact that you belong. You are citizens of a kingdom that crosses all these bounds. That is more important. That our joy ought to be greater when someone says, I am now with Jesus than anything else in the world. That's what the communion table calls us to. There's a movement kind of sweeping the country where they're doing election day communion to remind people of that. Had I been on my game more, we would be doing it, but we're not, so sorry. But I don't know, and I don't know if there's a place in town that is doing it, but, but I love this, the picture of it because we'll do it today. Even before we go into the election day, we say, you know, God has elected a king of the world. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they gather up in vain? The Lord sits on His throne in high heaven and scoffs. (laughs) And it's the communion table that reminds us of that. Jesus is King even now. Let's pray. Maybe you can take a few moments and just let the Holy Spirit kind of nudge your heart and, and speak to you and say... In what ways are you not taking it seriously enough, your responsibility to engage in a, a political process? or in, in what ways are you, are you sort of um, retreating into isolation? Maybe there's a room to repent of that. And maybe there are others of us who say, in what ways are you taking this too seriously, where you, you're making this the way the kingdom comes when you need to think of it differently? Maybe there's a room to repent there. We'll let the Lord kind of nudge your heart and then we'll pray a prayer of confession together and come to the table.